0: the most effective political movements of the 20th century, Gandhi in India, Martin Luther King Jr. in the US, Nelson Mandela in South Africa, that all of those successful movements came from a spiritual point of view, from a standpoint of love and compassion and a willingness to bring the other side
1: along. Welcome back to Sustainable Jungle Podcast. I'm Lyle and today Joy and I are speaking with Jerry Udelson, a passionate environmentalist and an author of numerous books on green buildings and other sustainability topics. In this episode, Jerry shares what it's like to live with out-of-control air and water pollution in the 1960s and 70s in Los Angeles and how he was involved in organizing the very first Earth Day on his college campus in 1970, which of course helped lead to real change. Jerry also shares his reflections on what we can learn from the current coronavirus pandemic and he tells us about his latest book titled The Godfather of Green, an Eco-Spiritual Memoir. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. Now, I give you Jerry Yudelson.
2: Welcome to our podcast, Jerry. Let's start with a little bit more about you. Where were you born and where did you grow up?
0: Well, I was actually uh, conceived in North Africa at the end of World War II. Um, wow.
2: <laughs> we haven't heard that I, one before. That, that's an opening. <laughs> at,
0: at least at least that was my parents' story, right? <laughs> um, but I, I was born in Connecticut on the East Coast, but basically grew up in Southern California and Los Angeles for all of my schooling and college and so forth. So pretty much um, a child of Southern California, and probably very um, emblematic of the attitudes of, you know, looking out the Pacific, you know, new frontiers. California was always the place where you went to do new things. And I think I imbibed that essence of the California sort of zeitgeist.
2: And tell us a little bit more about your career. Uh, I understand that you studied engineering.
0: Yeah, so I have a I have a nine word resume. I managed to boil it down, and it goes it goes like this: uh, engineer by training, marketer by inclination, and author by avocation. So I uh, basically I was got interested in engineering. Um, you know, kind of a more practical guy, and I was surrounded by lots of scientists at Caltech but um i gravitated towards engineering and particularly what they called then civil engineering now you might call it environmental engineering so i became aware you know when i graduated college that there was some something wrong you know they would close the beaches where i lived on occasion because the sewage was deposited literally right offshore oh, God. so if the currents were running the wrong way, Um, the sewage would come back on the beach and you couldn't go in the water. And I remember sailing as a teenager in Long Beach, just south of downtown LA and the harbor there. And there was one spot you had to avoid. And that was where the sewage pipe bubbled up in the middle of the harbor. And it was pretty gross, right? And so that was the sort of, and I grew up, there was one day out of every two, was an air pollution alert because of smog in Los Angeles. So it was impossible to avoid the subject of pollution. And, you know, as an engineer, I decided, well, why don't I see if I could do something about it? And when I graduated, I got a fellowship and went to Germany for a year because at that time, the Germans had the most advanced air pollu- uh, water pollution control in the world, and they had Worked out a thing with all of the industries, sort of the heavy industry along the Ruhr River, which for us would be like the Ohio River, and um, which flowed into the Rhine, Mississippi for us. And, and so I began to learn there was a lot you could do. Then I went for graduate work to Harvard to study more, and eventually back to Caltech. And all this time, was a time of great ferment in the US. It was the end of the 60s. It was the tune in, turn on, drop out. Drug culture, counterculture was going on. The Vietnam War was going on. There were tons of protests. Um, The civil rights movement was in, in red heat. And so there was a tremendous ferment. I called it in the book, tumultuous times and i thought well what could i do with all of my interest in pollution control i had to work on environmental issues and that's really what led me to earth day and what led me to want to take a stronger role with earth day than most graduate students you know if you're a graduate student and there was a couple of folks from australia there your only goal is to get done I imagine it must be something like a woman in her eighth month of pregnancy. All you want to do is get the thing over with. And yet I felt like, you know, we've got to talk to people about the environment. And when Earth Day was announced as a big national event, I started organizing first my campus and then other working with students at other campuses. Long story short, when Earth Day came around in April of 1970, Fiftieth anniversary of which is in a few days. Um, we had ten thousand colleges, universities, and secondary schools staging events and engaging an estimated twenty million people, which at that time was one tenth of the U.S. population. Now that one tenth doesn't seem like a lot, but if you if you were to think about a say an Australian context and you had two million people turn out for something the politicians would take notice right absolutely that's huge
2: yeah
0: the, the politicians don't have a ton of practical skills but one thing they do know is how to count <laughs> <laughs> we can count on that at least and you can you can count when you can count 20 million heads coming out for something you want to do something to uh, get in front of the parade so to speak so that led over the next five years to a dozen major environmental laws being passed by the US Congress and also by the many of the states like California where I lived, that are still in force today. And that have resulted in say in Los Angeles, we had one day out of every two was air pollution alert, unhealthy air. In fact, we used to joke. I wouldn't want to breathe any air I couldn't see Because (laughs) the smog was so thick you actually could see it um, if you look horizontally so All of that happened in that period of time and of course there's been a lot of fights political fights since then 50 years is a long time and You know there have been a few setbacks along the road, but the bottom line is all that stuff's still in place so Los Angeles now has one day in every four that's polluted because of its unique geography. And it has three times as many people. So you might say the air pollution is six times better sure. than, it, than it was. So, And interestingly enough, at that time, the president was a Republican, Richard Nixon. And the governor of California was Ronald Reagan, who also became president later on. And they signed these laws. So the political consensus was in favor of a cleaner environment, even if it meant you had to put pressure on business to clean up their act, so to speak. And that that was really um, different than what we see today, where, at least in the U.S. and I think in Australia and other places, um, taking action, for example, on climate change has become extremely partisan and divisive you wouldn't have seen that long ago because everyone's got to breathe and Republicans as well as Democrats have to breathe Not quite the same air but pretty close to it. So bottom line is We had a lot of political success. The environmental movement took off and, and really has thrived since then and After a few years, we had the first Arab oil embargo in the US, where they cut off oil from Arabia and other places. And I began to think about energy differently. I thought, well, you know what? We've got all this sunshine in California. Why can't we use it to make electricity? And why can't we use it to heat our homes and businesses? And so I got very interested in renewable energy and solar. And I ended up running the State of the California programs in solar energy under Governor Jerry Brown, who had a second governorship that just ended last year, 2018 actually. So, and I did that, I did wind power. And by the mid eighties, the oil prices had gone down tremendously and we kind of lost the economic argument for a while and everything went into a research and development mode. And in the 90s, I got interested in green building and it pretty much continued that interest ever since. So the whole idea of making your buildings, which use 40% or generate 40% of the carbon emissions, making them more environmentally sustainable had a lot of appeal to me and it seemed to relate to everything else i had been doing. And so I got heavily involved in that movement on a first national basis and then global basis. And that pretty much defined the last part of my career.
3: So you spoke about the tumultuous times in the 70s and the aftermath. But again, we find ourselves at quite a dramatic turning point. Um, And and now I want to touch on on your book that you've written, The Godfather of Green, an eco-spiritual memoir, which will actually be released, as you said, I think on Earth Day's 50th anniversary this month. But I'm wondering, would you mind sharing with us what the book is about?
0: It started out as a kind of a personal journal, if you will, a personal memoir. And I had in mind a passage I had read in a book quite some years ago. There was a whole series of books, I think there were 10 in all, by a writer named Carlos Castaneda, who was an anthropologist, but in the course of his Work. he wound up studying shamanism with a Mexican Indian native Mexican shaman and wrote a series of books about it in any case in one of those books the shaman whose name was Don Juan said to Carlos you know before you leave this world you should make an accounting of your life you should reflect on what you've learned and and what you've brought to this life and somehow that little snippet stuck with me and when i started to write this thing i said you know if you write a typical like a a family history it's you know i did this i did that this happened that happened and fundamentally it's of interest to nobody including your family uh, particularly um, holocaust survivors and a few other people like nelson mandela accepted but if you were to go deeper and write about the things that really moved you, the things that shaped you and are still influences. Maybe people would be interested in that. And one of the things that had shaped me and moved me was an encounter just a few years after Earth Day with a very powerful Indian spiritual master who had come to the U.S. on a world tour that lasted something like two and a half years in the mid-70s. And I received initiation into his path of meditation and mindfulness in a very powerful way that I describe in the book and began to practice meditation, mindfulness, various other things related to spiritual development, if you will. And I knew that these things the environmental interest, the spiritual interest, that these things had always worked together. That my interest in environmental matters was largely, you know, result not just of living in pollution, but of having an understanding that as a society and a civilization, that we had lost our way, that we had somehow come to believe that the only way to exist Was to exploit the earth, was to trash the environment. And that was, quote, the price of progress. And I knew that wasn't right. But I knew also that there was a spiritual dimension to the ecological crisis of the times that was missing. And so when I began my own spiritual journey, I began to knit those things together, however imperfectly, over a period of years. And so when I wrote the book, I wanted to look at it as you know two strands that together wove a tapestry, and that tapestry was the story I was going to tell so that's how the thing came about and as I got into it, and I think what anybody will realize if they try to write an honest accounting of their life is I began to get insights and I began to recall incidents that were of significance and i didn't realize it at the time but you know if you think about something now you guys are obviously a lot younger than i am but still if you think about something in your life that really moved you or changed your direction or had a lasting influence you might just find it was one little thing that kind of uh, pushed you off center so that you had to find a new center if you will and that those incidents began to come back and i began to see wow if i could really go deep into this um life and really bring out for people what what were the moving and you know make it fun you know it does not real have to be serious like you know i was a a childhood vampire and somebody, (laughs) someone stole my stick, you know, Uh, you know, but, but be be able to tell a story to people that they would find moving, funny, engaging, because after all, you want people to read a book um, and ultimately have some value. And so fast forward, I'm writing the book, And of course the climate crisis is coming and the climate strikes are beginning uh, in the last year or so And I'm thinking to myself. Well, you know, what would I tell a young person today? What would I tell a teenage climate striker that they wouldn't just say well, that's just some seasoned citizens Viewpoint it got nothing to do with me, right? Yeah, and Because young people don't listen to older people for the most part. (laughs) And usually for good reason, because they're not telling them anything new, right? So I said, well, what could I tell these people? And so at the end of the book, there's an epilogue in the form of an open letter to a young climate striker, where I talk about the need to take care of yourself while you're also taking care of the planet and the need to be in this for the long haul and to understand that the most effective political movements of the 20th century gandhi in india martin luther king jr in the u.s nelson mandela in south africa that all of those successful movements came from a spiritual point of view from a standpoint of love and compassion and a willingness to bring the other side along with you they didn't weren't necessarily going to do it willingly or even knowingly but to treat them as equal human beings and make them see the wisdom of the path that you're promoting if you will and each did it in his own way and according to his own times but those ideas of spiritual development because after all what we're really talking about here is changing the culture changing the culture of exploitation into one of sustainable living and changing culture is really hard you know it's very easy to switch from driving a a petrol-fueled car into an electric car right It's easy. You you just go down to the Tesla dealership and you buy a Tesla. There you have it finished. Then you make sure there's enough charging stations and you're done. That's easy. You can do that in, in a week. But to change culture, to change the dominant ideas, takes a long time and we don't have that much time. That's our dilemma right now because we have 10 years to reverse the trajectory now of course with the current pandemic we're seeing all of a sudden you know oil demand has fallen 25% and therefore carbon emissions this year are going to fall but they don't just disappear because they fall for one year they keep adding up in the atmosphere and we're rapidly heading towards that 450 parts per million threshold that is going to push warming above two degrees centigrade and cause an awful lot of effects known and unknown. So I wanted to write something for young people about the need to have a, a, an approach of mindfulness to this. The book is is sort of my reflections on a lot of years of working for a cleaner environment and a better world, so to speak. Um, along with spiritual practices that I think, you know, inform those uh, other, that other work. And I think I'm also wanting to demonstrate that saving the planet and becoming a better human being, so to speak, go together. They go hand in hand. They're not opposed. You're not going to go sit on a mountaintop and become enlightened while the rest of the world Goes into a steamy uh, you know carbon rich environment, yeah you know, it's not going to work. it doesn't work, and every spiritual teacher will tell you that if you have the ability, get out and do something positive, get out and make a change that you think is is worthwhile, but do it with compassion, do it with full understanding of everyone's essential humanity, everyone's essential sameness. And you'll be much more effective over the long haul, than being a an angry person, because ultimately people get tired of you. As you have said,
3: you've been an environmentalist for over thirty years. Uh, what? Sorry, should I say over forty, fifty years, Jerry? What's you can
0: a- you can say it, Lyle. As long as we're speaking truth to power here, you can say it. Okay. Well, there you go.
3: And. Um, uh, you know, Joy and I were both saying we we find it amazing that you, after all this time and you know, really an uphill battle at every corner, you're still so optimistic and positive um, about the future and about what we can achieve. And I'm wondering if that has to do with the spirituality element that you've brought to this, which is very interesting and a unique take. Is that is that what's kept you positive and, and in in a in a hopeful mindset?
0: Well, you know, I, I used to have a saying that the difference between an optimist and a pessimist is that an optimist thinks this is the best of all possible worlds, and a pessimist is afraid that he's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't really think that way anymore. I think that each of us has an obligation to bring our best self to the world, both for ourselves, for our families, for the people around us. And you know, you don't have to do anything to be a positive influence. You know, if you're in a good mood and you walk into a store or coffee shop or restaurant, people are going to notice right away. Hasn't that ever happened? I know you guys are, at least from your videos, you look like an upbeat uh, couple. Uh, And I'm sure when you're Feeling really good. You notice the effect of people around you so what I think is that it's important for people who do this inner work to Bring themselves out into the world and offer The fruits of their practice in in the indian world. It's called doing your dharma doing your practicing righteousness in the world and you just have to do it because A, that's who you've become, and B, it really helps other people. You know, people want to be uplifted. When I began to get interested in buildings and 15 years ago began to understand how buildings contributed to the uh, CO2 problem through their operations and the materials that go into them and so forth, I became even more convinced of the relationship between what I was doing with trying to design more sustainable buildings and convince people to do that and the global CO2 problem. So I feel like all of these things have kind of come together at the tail end, near the tail end of my active career that I can still make a contribution by talking about it, sharing lessons learned, and then the book, became a way to kind of put it all between covers because it's not really a book that's going to tell you how to solve the CO2 problem, but it it might give you inspiration for your personal journey in it. And you could see how you could take that into a very positive way. And what you are doing with communication about sustainability is a key part of that. And it just, all I would say is, you know, it's important that we learn where we can from indigenous peoples how to handle this very different world that we're facing and how to develop a ethical and moral code that relates to the seventh in the American Indian Native American way the seventh generation philosophy of doing everything that you do with concern for the next seven generations and how it would affect people and that way of thinking was of course totally destroyed by the what we used to call the make take and waste approach of european and then american civilization but you know we've taken that as far as we can we've done tremendously interesting things with it we've sent a few brave souls to the moon and got them back uh and so forth but you know what it's been been purchased at a high price and i think you cannot look at environmental issues anymore on anything but a global level and that's that's daunting for a lot of people because a lot of people are like well what can i do as one person right what can i do to move the needle as one person and i think that is the individual's question and i think in climate change i've been reading a a lot of tweets from a climate scientist in, in Texas named katherine hayhoe and she is a basically says, number one thing that she can do right now is dialogue.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: is bring other people along. Tell the truth, don't sugarcoat it, and don't let anybody else push you off center and talk about it everywhere you can. And she's very effective at it. And she also is an evangelical Christian. So she's bringing the faith community along with her. And as you probably have guessed, there aren't a lot of scientists in the faith community, but there are some. And Mm -hmm. it's really important that we take those teachings that people value in the faith community, broadly speaking, and apply them To these issues. And so she's having a tremendous impact in overcoming the resistance because a lot of it is just passive resistance. It's, you know, I don't want to know, you know, I want to play golf in my retirement. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. I I don't want to go out and stand on a corner with a sign around my neck, you know, repent. Uh, But we have to talk to each other, and I think that's, that's certainly going on. But at the same time, there are some people who want to throw themselves in front of pipeline construction, yeah. and they're, they're going to do it, and they are hopefully do it in a nonviolent way, and that's part of this same tradition as well, is the uh, resistance. Certainly, if you look at South Africa and what it took to overcome apartheid, it was a lot of resistance and nonviolent in spirit, but didn't always wind up that way. And yet when it was all done, as you know, people were able to get together and reconcile to some degree. And that was um, a tremendously moving lesson, I think for the rest of the world. That at some point we are all neighbors and we have to get along with each other and we have to tell the truth to each other. So, part of the climate crisis is telling the truth, but doing it in a way that other people can see yes, I can go along with this.
3: I can't agree more with you that it's so important to bring everybody along for the journey.
0: We're really grappling for narratives that help us. Understand, and so one of the books that I read recently that was had a tremendous impact on me was was called *The Great Derangement*, and uh, written by a Bengali novelist who teaches in the U.S. and I think lives in London now, Amitav Ghosh. About three or four years ago, but he basically argues that by focusing so much on what he called the moral adventures of the individual that we've lost track of what's really important and as a civilization that that our writers and artists are so focused on their own particular lives and the lives of people like them that they're not talking about the planet and the way to live on the planet. There's a few poets that do and there's a few people but the narrative is controlled by business, and that's okay up to a point, but the real narrative about how we live has got to be the work of artists, poets, uh, painters, writers, And and there is some of this going on. I'm just reading now a wonderful novel called The Overstory by Richard Powers, which won an American National Pulitzer Prize two years ago where it's all about trees and how we relate to trees. So there are some writers doing this, but they're not the ones you're gonna read about a lot. So what can we learn from the coronavirus, the, the pandemic? I think a couple of things really stand out. One is we were warned and we took no action. We didn't prepare. We were warned in the U.S in 2016, 2017, 2018, that this was very likely to happen because we had already seen it happen with SARS and MERS and Ebola and HIV, all of these diseases moving from animals to humans and being transmitted around the world. We were, we just did not take it seriously. So maybe, maybe this time will be different. Um, The second thing we've learned is that we're much more resilient than we believed because even though we were unprepared, we meaning in global society, certainly of the wealthier countries, we're able to respond pretty darn quickly. And in the U.S., we may be under lockdown for two months, but that's just two months. It's not like a 10-year global depression like the 1930s. Um, the third thing that we probably have learned is that we really need to listen to the science and the science on global warming is pretty clear. And if anything, it errs on this side of understating the problem. So those are three things that I think we learn. We can be much better prepared that we have to take, uh, measures well in advance that we have to focus on resiliency and how we build resilient and adaptive structures into our societies. And third is we do have to listen to the science because the science is usually right. I would say the number one thing we learned is this stuff came out of nowhere and in three months brought us to our knees. What are we going to do with a climate pandemic? That isn't going to go away in three months, that isn't going to be addressable by just staying home. That's a real challenge, and that's where we have to go. Ultimately, the message is we've been looking after the wrong things. We've been looking after our individual welfare, our psychological well being, and we've just forgotten to take care of our true mother, the earth, without which we don't have a chance of existing.
2: Um, Gary, I was going to ask you if you could get one message into the heads of every human on earth and be truly heard, what would it be? But it sounds like it's going to be something related to take care of your mother or would you prefer a different sort of single most no, important I, I message? Mean,
0: <laughs> I mean, the, the thing is we need to do it and we need to do it now and we need to accept That there are going to be inconveniences and disruptions along the way, but that the alternative is even worse. And maybe it's somehow people have to get that it isn't that we're going to have to make changes. It's that changes are coming and we Mm -hmm. can either make them changes that we like or changes that really degrade our quality of life. We have to decide and no use and of course one of the things that is holding us back is the tremendous inequality in in the world and something like one percent of the world's people own more resources than 80 percent of the rest of the world yeah and that inequality hinders our ability to do anything politically because it's always about i've got to as they say, whose ox is being gored. And that, I think, is the challenge for democracies, but it's also the challenge for societies run in other ways because, you know, Mother Earth doesn't fool around and doesn't really care about your political organization. She only cares about how much carbon is in the atmosphere.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So
0: that is a challenge for all of us
2: definitely it makes a lot of sense i mean it's crazy to think that we're opting for such a short term view at this point especially in places like australia and the us we are really not not thinking about how this is going to affect us long term we're just uh, we're in it for the short term gratification which is a little upsetting but i think it is going to turn around hopefully i think people well, are starting you to know, get you know you have messages. to
0: talk to your you have to talk to your neighbors because ultimately your neighbors are going to have to buy in. Yeah. And that, to me, is the challenge. We just have to be willing to do it.
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Jerry. And uh, finally, how can people support you? How can they buy your book?
0: Well, as every author likes to say, buy my book.
2: <laughs>
0: um, no, The Godfather of Green, an eco-spiritual memoir, will go on sale Wednesday. You can pre-order it now <clears throat> through any source that you like. Certainly the big Godzilla <laughs> the superpower, Google, uh, Amazon is always out there, but um, there is an ebook and it's cheaper and it's also available. Um, you can order that from any local source. I know in Australia, there's a couple of sources in fact, On my website, jerryudelson.net, website for the book, um, there's a whole bunch of buttons where you can order the book, and I think two of them are for Australia. One's for the UK, one's for Canada, and then the rest are broadly based. But I encourage people to buy books from independent bookstores if they can, and buy the ebook if it's more convenient for you. Well, thank you so much,
3: Thanks Jerry. Thanks so much, Jerry. Really, it was a very, very inspiring story and journey, and uh, I think everybody can really benefit and appreciate your words of wisdom from a long tenure in working with environmental solutions. So, thank you so much for for um, chatting with us today.
1: We take such comfort in knowing that we, as humanity, can make change happen, and really. This is a very human issue. Now is absolutely the time to pull together, take our friends, family and neighbours along for the journey with empathy and compassion. As always, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.